Everybody doing good? Yeah? All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and go with me to uh, the book of Matthew. Before we get there, we've got a couple things to cover. Uh, first, y'all look good this morning. I'm proud of y'all. Y'all feel good? Glad to be here? I missed y'all last week, but like getting up here and seeing y'all's faces, you're, you're pretty. Not, not that back left corner. Y'all got to work on it. But everyone else, man, y'all looking good. Um, all right, so a couple quick announcements. One, we've got some baptisms. We've got about six or seven people that are interested in baptism. Uh, so we're going to have the first one scheduled March 3rd. And then really our goal is to leave that baptistry up just as long as we need to. Um, so if you're interested in baptism and you want to talk more about it, please come find me or one of the elders. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, God is doing a mighty work saving people here, uh, kids, adults. It's just incredible to be a, a part of. So uh, make sure you uh, come talk to one of us if you are interested in that. Um, second, we have a new church partner to welcome, uh, which is Miss Ruth Chapman. Ruth, stand up for us. So we're super excited to have her a part of Redeemer Church. Uh, and then third, last but not least, uh, if you were not able to make it to our family reunion Wednesday night, uh, we ordained two new deacons to, uh, to Redeemer Church. So I'm going to ask these two guys to come up real quick. Um, they're going to lead us in the doxology. They're going to sing some for us. So um, if you guys will come on up. Um, hey, Keith, can, can you come get some batters for this? Because um, so, I, want, I want the church to get to know this is Thomas Arnold. Um, Thomas has been here for quite some time. This is Drew Thomason. Uh, in, I don't need batteries. Uh, this is Keith Jones. So this is the only way I knew I could get him up here. Uh, the beauty, so stay right here. The beauty of having two new deacons rotate off is we get an opportunity to give some of our deacons that have served here for a long time a well-needed and deserved break. So uh, here's what I want to do. I want to welcome our two new deacons, and I want to welcome and thank Keith for all that he's done over the last six, seven, eight years. So you guys can grab a seat. Just so y'all know, my life was just threatened right there. Uh, but I had, to, I had to do it. Keith is, I mean, when you think about deacon, servant, uh, behind the scenes, no one knows what you're doing. Uh, that, that is Keith Jones. He sits back there almost every single Sunday uh, running the sound. It's a thankless job. No one sees it or recognizes it. And unless something goes wrong, then everyone turns around, right? Um, but we just wanted to honor Keith, and I knew that there'd be no way he'd get up here unless I tricked him. So... We love you, Keith. Thank you for doing that. Uh, Matthew 11 is where we're going to be, 20 through 24. So if you have your Bibles, flip there. Um, and, and as a way of introduction, um, did everyone have a good Valentine's Day? Did, did anybody forget Valentine's Day? See, here's the, here's the uh, that's a problem. Um, here's the trick to Valentine's Day, right? It's really not that complicated. Here's a trick to a good happy marriage. Here's a trick to uh, good parenting. Just don't be indifferent. Just love your wife, love your husband, celebrate them, um, be good to them. The same thing with your kids. Be interested in what they're doing, just, just don't be indifferent. See, when you get indifferent, that's where uh, calluses start to form, that's where relationships start to go awry. So the key of Valentine's isn't flowers. Like, I don't know if any, my, my wife does not like roses, right? So if I would have come home with a dozen roses, she'd be like, what are you doing? Um, so it's not like just do what everyone else does but to love and cherish your wife, love and cherish your husband, support your kids in a way that they need. It's to not operate out of indifference, but out of love and affection. And the only reason I'm bringing that up is that's exactly what the scriptures are going to show us this morning, that Jesus will not tolerate indifference out of our lives. And it's really, I mean, when we get to the nuts and bolts of the scripture today, it will all make sense but my prayer is that we'll see just the, the, the stones will be removed from our hearts, the, uh, the blindness removed from our eyes so we can clearly see how in our lives we're operating out of indifference. Because for some of us, we're operating out of indifference in our relationship with Jesus because society, that's just the way we've been raised, right? Just go to church, uh, try not to cuss, try not to drink too much, throw something off offering plate, and you're good. But what we're really doing in that moment is operating out of indifference. Or some of us, we've walked into this room 
And if we're honest, we're a little frustrated with the Lord. He didn't show up in this way like we thought he would, or, or we expected him to answer this prayer, and he didn't, so we're dealing with some indifference there. And so, so there's a litmus of different reasons why we could wrestle with this idea of indifference, but we have to see here clearly in the Scripture the consequences of that indifference, that Jesus is not indifferent to our indifference, right? He, he sees it, he notices it, and he's not pleased with it. So uh, with that in view, Matthew 11, 20 through 24 is where we're going to be. If you can uh, flip there and then stand with me, we're going to read together, pray, and then dive straight in. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For in the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you open up our hearts, illuminate this text to our minds this morning, Father. Help us not to be indifferent. Help us to see the reality of our hearts and how they're bent towards you and repent and change this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. So obviously, as we can tell, this one's going to be a little heavy and weighty, right? I mean, if if we're preaching a message and there's woe to you in that message, I promise there's no way I can make that a cheerful message. So just lean into this morning and understand that this is going to be a deep one, but for our good, for our joy, if we lean into this idea of indifference, it'll change, radically change the way that we live. And so for, we have to understand the context of what's happening real quick because really chapter 11 is, is a pretty crazy one, but it's kind of turned into the, one of my most favorite chapters that I've preached through uh, because it's a really practical uh, call and response, right? So at chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples, uh, sheep among wolves. He's going to, uh, he gives them all authority to preach the gospel. He gives them all authority to cast out demons, um, all authority to heal the sick. So he sends them out to the Jewish communities as, as he says, uh, sheep among wolves. Meaning you're going to be devoured, you're going to be destroyed, there's going to be uh, people coming after you, just be ready, be prepared. And so he sends them out, and as they're starting to trickle back in, uh, chapter 11 turns to John the Baptist in prison. Now John the Baptist, greatest among all men, that's what Jesus calls him. Uh, He got to baptize Jesus. I don't care how close your relationship is with Jesus, you didn't baptize him, therefore John the Baptist is on a different level, right? And so as he comes back into town, uh, John the Baptist is in prison, and he sends out a message to Jesus going, hey, listen, are you the one? Because I thought I was going to preach and proclaim. I thought I was going to lead the captives to you. I thought I was going to baptize. I was going to be the bold proclamationer of the gospel. That's a word I just made up, proclamationer. Uh, You can Google that later. Um, And I didn't think that all this was going to end up me in prison. I thought I was going to do all this. And then I was going to be with you as we overthrow Rome, as we take back our land, and as we put God where he belongs, high and mighty. But I'm actually in prison. And so even though I baptized you, and even though I heard from the heavens, I saw the dove ascend down, I heard God speak to you, this is my son who I'm well pleased, I'm now sitting in prison, Jesus, are you actually the one, because this is going really bad for me? Pretty valid question coming from John. And so Jesus addresses John, yes, I'm the one, hold fast. I am the one, you know the prophets, you know the stories, and then he turns to the crowd around them, he begins to speak to them. And this is really kind of one of the first times we've seen in the book of Matthew some frustration coming out of Jesus. He's seen what's happening. He's seen the sin and the depravity that's taking place, and he's getting a little frustrated here. And, and why? What's the core? What's the root of his frustration? Well, look back with me at Matthew 11, verses 16. This is how Jesus summarizes it. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. 
We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. He's saying, listen, the Jewish community, you know what's taking place. You know the Abrahamic covenant. You know the Davidic covenant. You know what the prophets shouted from the rooftops. You know how they were beaten and abused for what they were speaking. But then you also know that they were right. You know that they took your ancestors out of the promised land, took them into captivity. You know that they sent them back, that they rebuilt the temple. You know what Ezra and Nehemiah said. You know that the Messiah was coming. You specifically know what Elijah said. Now you know what John the Baptist has done. Now that I'm here and you still don't see it. I'm doing all of this for you. The music is playing and you're not dancing. And I'm in front of you and you're not repenting. So we we see in these characteristics, we see the the celebration that the Messiah has come, but also the the fear and the repentance comes with the presence of Messiah coming. That's what a dirge is. It's really a, it's a, it's an anthem for a funeral. It's something that we should mourn over. It's something that links us into mourning. Here's, here's one example from around the 1790s. This is not a thing that we uh, really lean into now, which is the dirge, the suffering, the lament. That's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day, but, but we really should. I mean, if there's an entire book called Lamentations, we should learn as a society how to lament, right? We should mourn well because in our mourning, we see God in his glory. But regardless, there's a dirge written from Newburyport, which uh, sidebar George Whitfield preached in Newburyport. That's where he died. That's where he's buried. So George Whitfield was preaching in this area with the great awakening in the midst. And here's this dirge that came from that. And if it sounds sad, it should. Farewell, farewell, a sad, a long farewell to this pale clay whose life had fled. Resigned it back to kindred dust till the last trump awake the dead. Adieu, thou departing soul, thou goest from hence to Christ above. They're to partake in the endless bliss and celebrate redeeming love. We mourn thy sudden swift remove from each and all enjoyments here. When Christ commands, we must obey without murmur or a tear. Submitting to his sovereign will, let us be silent and adore. The God who hath created all in all shall rule forevermore. Farewell, farewell, a sad and long farewell. So, so this is what a dirge, it's easier a song, a poem, uh, an art modern day, a spoken word that would bring about the mourning and lament that was taking place. So Jesus is saying, I've showed up and you know who I am and there's no dancing and you know what I represent and there's no repentance. There's no flute playing in the streets, partying, and there's no dirge, there's no mourning of repentance that, that he's here to separate the living from the dead. He's here to judge None of that's taking place. What Jesus is starting to get really frustrated with is that he showed up and there's nothing but indifference from the Jewish people that should know who he is. I mean, just consider real quick the book of Isaiah, which again, all these Jewish people would know. Isaiah 53, four through five says this. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrow, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is a messianic prophecy pointed right at Jesus. The people that Jesus was doing these miracles to knew the book of Isaiah. They knew what to look for in the Messiah. And Jesus was right in front of them. And their response was nothing. Indifference. Just sitting there. And so what then was Jesus' response to all of this? Well, we can see it in the text. He's furious. He's getting frustrated with them because they knew what they were looking for and they didn't see it. I mean, imagine, just imagine being face-to-face with Jesus. And you've heard what's been taking place. You've seen the miracles. You've seen this tax collector cast out demons. You saw this fisherman that you went to high school with that was nothing but a dirt bag uh, cast a demon out and then heal someone that was sick. Like you've seen all of this take place and then you finally get to come face to face with the ringleader, Jesus. And you go, meh, you just look like a normal dude to me. Now, if, if you were Jesus in that moment, I mean, if it's me, I would have killed you on the spot. I would give you that little wink and then you're done. Because here I am, the Messiah shown up and the response to this is, no big deal. No big deal. Cool, what's, what's for lunch? 
this is Jesus God, that's, that's great, but I've got bitter, bigger and more important things to do. See, this is the tone of the people, the Jewish people that's leading to this frustration that's coming out in Jesus as we see here. But, but why does this matter for us this morning? I think it's of paramount importance for us as we live in the Bible Belt Christianity. Christians, we need to learn into his frustrations this morning lest we stay in the season of indifference that plagues the American church. I mean, when you think about the average church attendance is 1.7 times a month, I don't know what to call that other than indifference. When we think about what is, how much does Jesus come up in our average thoughts, conversations? How much does Jesus rule and reign the way that we think about our jobs, the way that we think about our families, the way that we think about our careers, our, our life plan? I mean, have we truly submitted all of ourselves to King Jesus and let him direct all of our paths? Or do we live in this middle ground of indifference? Yeah, I could do better, but I could also do a whole lot worse. So we're just going to stay in this neutrality land of indifference. But Jesus says, no. Jesus literally says, no, that is not an option. You're either going to follow me or you're not. And this is what we walk ourselves into this morning. So the big idea that I want us to see is simply this. Jesus does not simply excuse the sin of indifference. And in there we have to see two things. One, that indifference is a sin. And therefore Jesus cannot just overlook sin. But he punishes it rightly. Or maybe we could say justly. That it's not a sinful thing for Jesus to punish our sin of indifference towards him. I mean, if he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he is the King of all kings, Lord of all lords. When we come to that revelation in God's saving faith, and then our response to that is, cool, but I've got my own life happening. We just expect Jesus to be okay with that. And we would never express it in that way, but our lives live in this manner. So church, let us lean in. I've got two older brothers, so one of the joys of having two older brothers, but I, I got to watch them get destroyed by my parents and say, I'm never going to do that, right? In the same way, let us watch the people of God in the Galilean area get destroyed by Jesus. And our response is to lean in and go, what were they doing so I don't do that? Let this be a warning for us this morning. So point number one, I've had a lot of critique in my preaching that I don't actually slow down enough to make sure people get the points. So point number one, one, here's point number one, okay? I don't know what I'm going to do when I get to three, but I'll figure it out in the meantime. Point number one, those most familiar with Jesus were the most indifferent to Jesus, the point number one we got to draw out of this text is the people that were most familiar with Jesus were those most indifferent to Jesus. Look back with me at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most, you can circle that, most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. And then he goes into the woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And so Jesus is going, listen, you saw me the most. Now, just remember contextually where we are. We're still in the Galilean region. So all these cities that he's mentioning are about a two-mile journey from one another. So they're all still close, local, regional. So as Jesus is sending out his disciples, as Jesus is going out to preach, he's going out to these regions where his fame, his name, his renown should be spreading. And it is, but there's still an apathetic response to it. So Jesus begins, as we see in verse 20, to denounce which means address someone in a way of disapproval or disappointment. So Jesus is denouncing them. He's disapproving or disappointing. And also in the Greek, it means unbraid, which is to find fault someone or scold them. So Jesus is denouncing. He's scolding them in a very disapproving way because what they have seen, they've done nothing with. This is what's taking place here, that Jesus is denouncing them. Well, Why? because of his mighty works that he's been done, that he's done and nothing has been done in return. There's no celebration and there's no repentance. That Jesus is doing all of this and there's been literally no response. Remember, they didn't dance, they didn't mourn, they didn't do anything. 
So after this season, Jesus starts to throw out these woes to these cities that knew him the most, that heard most about what Jesus and his disciples were doing, and he starts to give out woes to these cities. Woes includes notes of anger, but also pity. It's judgment, but it's also a call to repentance. This is a, a warning sign. I'm not pleased with what's happening. You're missing the boat, and if you don't, you will miss me completely. So repent. This is what Jesus is saying to these cities. Woe to you. I'm, I'm disappointed, but I'm not done. Right? Like, I'm, I'm still calling after you. I'm still pursuing you, but I'm really disappointed in what's taking place here. And what was it with these towns? Well, this is where all the action was taking place. I mean, this is what, I mean, I'm, I'm going off script, but here we go. This is what we all want, right? Like, like we want Jesus to show up in a magnificent way that I can never denounce that you actually are who you say you are, and I promise I'll never turn my back. And here's how I know that will not work, because it didn't work here. All these miracles are taking place, and it's still not enough. Jesus is still having to call them to repentance, and it's going to get even worse Consider this, Luke chapter 12, 47 through 48, puts it, puts it this way. And the servant who knew his master, master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, re, will receive a severe beating. Now, this is a parable. Consider that. That the servant that knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But, but we want Jesus just to be okay with our indifference. Like, we want, but Jesus, like, listen, I, I know it's you. I believe in you. But I've got these other things happening. You should understand that. Okay, well, let's take it out of the Bible for a second. Let's take it into parenting. How would that work with our parenting? If we said, hey, kids, I want you to do this, and, you said, and they said, Dad, listen, like, you know I'll get to it eventually because I know you're my dad. But I've got these other things going on right now. Like I'm on Madden NFL right now, and I'm about to win. So let me get this, and then if I get this, that's the AFC championship. Then I'm going to the Super Bowl. So once I finish all of these things, then I'll get to what you've asked me to do. You think that's going to end well? Parenting? No. Relationships? Marriage? You think that's going to end well there? Employment? All these different things we think we, we know it would not operate anywhere else, but for whatever reason, we get into our relationship with Jesus and we think he's just going to be okay with it. He's just going to tolerate it. But he's not. And the craziest thing is it's not the people far from God that feel this. It's the people closest to him. It's the ones that know better that feel this. Because look with me at verse 21. This is where things start to shift a little bit. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago in sackcloth and ashes, right? So Tyron and Sidon are twin cities at Israel's north border, right? So they're not in this area. They're not Jewish. They're Gentile cities. And really, when you go into the historicity of Tyre and Sidon, they're horrible places. I mean, not just now, but historically, they are horrible Places. I mean, this is right where like all the fishermen come in. It's a port city. So even within that, you have all the sin that comes in from them coming into the ports. These two cities were deep pit for the worship of Baal. So like the, the, the uh, false gods that were worshipped there was a, a mecca for these areas. These cities were as moral as you could imagine. They were Gentile, pagan, heathen societies. They were greedy and cruel people. And we could see even throughout history how God has destroyed these cities throughout the Old Testament for just how awful and wicked they are. But what does Jesus say? That if I would have done these miracles in this deplorable, disgusting, Gentile areas, they would have repented, but you haven't. See, those that know they need a Savior are looking for that everywhere. But the sin of indifference is what's going to actually damn us to hell because we know just enough to be uh, awful, to be misled, to be misused by Satan in this enemy. See, see we have to be so careful. That I've quoted this time and time again. But C.S. Lewis talks about in Screw Tape Letters that the greatest sin that the enemy can get us to go to is not into actual sin and wickedness. 
because then we would have the potential at one point to, to realize just the sin and the depravity that we've welcomed into our lives, and we would want to change for the betterment of the gospel. But if we can get lured to this indifference, Satan wins forever. Because we think we're just good enough to please him, but we're not actually going to follow him. And again, we've got to be careful because we would never tell ourselves that. But if we look at the way that we live, that's actually what's taking place. So the, the prophets here in the Old Testament denounced the vile and wretchedness, wretchedness of these two cities. These two Gentile cities were deplorable and should be wiped off the face of the map. And yet the Lord says, if I would have done this in these areas, they would have repented, but you haven't. So Jesus was saying this, one, because it's true and factual, but two, as a wake-up call for them to realize that your smug self-righteous is not saving you, it's actually condemning you. That your indifference to me is not going to save you, it's going to send you to hell. So Jesus is teaching us, and this should make all of us lean up, especially if we've been raised in church. Jesus is teaching that those that are closest to him that understand the Christian needs of how things are supposed to run and operate, that know the scriptures almost better than anybody else, can be lured into a spirit of indifference faster than anyone else. That the Jewish people missed Jesus' arrival. The Jewish people, some of them, have still missed Jesus' arrival. So we have to lean into this. This should put fear in us. If we've been raised in church, the greatest strategy of Satan is not to get us into falling some wickedness and depravity and sin. The greatest trick of the enemy is to get us to fall into indifference than he has us. And we look just statistically. I mean, I'm, I'm a numbers guy. Statistically, when you look at the sudden collapse of evangelicalism over the last 20, 30 years, we see that all of this was propped up 30, 40, 50 years ago by a spirit of indifferenceness. And because there's no true, tangible faith that's, that's leading people into hard areas for the gospel, the indifference has just started to fall and fall and fall, and here's where we find ourselves. So, so we should not be confused that because I'm not like uh, Tyre and Sidon, I don't really have to repent. No, Jesus is saying that you're the ones that are closest to me. You have to repent the most because you're walking in a spirit of indifference. Point number two that we see in all of this, point number two, the consequences of indifference are just but severe. The consequences of indifference are just, but they are severe. Look with me at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable for the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, there's two areas we need to address here. One is Capernaum and the other is Sodom. Right, so Capernaum is Jesus' adopted hometown. Right, this is where Jesus is living. This is the hub of his ministry. I mean, this is it. When you think about where should the people know Jesus the best, it would be Capernaum. It'd be the place where he's living, he's resided. When he's not going out on these preaching tours, these healing tours, this is where he is. So the people in Capernaum have the most access to Jesus and therefore should have the closest relationship with Jesus. But what we see here is this indifference that's really cursed that. But then also we have to understand Sodom. If you have any background in church, you probably know some of the stories, and I would encourage you to go read Genesis 15, Genesis 19. It can elaborate more, but let me read, Pebby, a really potent quote from uh, John MacArthur on this realities of Sodom, and there's a, a word in here that if you have a child, maybe close their ears, because this is what we need to see. John MacArthur says about Sodom, I mean, what other city did God rain fire and brimstone on? And what other city was populated by a whole group of homosexuals who tried to rape angels? And when they were struck blind, instead of running in terror, it made them more difficult for them to find the door. This is how John MacArthur summarizes Sodom. 
So in this moment, Jesus is comparing and contrasting his hometown in Israel with him present in this godless, wretched town of Sodom that we can't even, I don't know that I would ever really publicly teach on what Sodom is because of the hard conversations that we'd have to talk through. And so Jesus is, I mean, really taking all the gloves off of here. He's saying, listen, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, because of your indifference, you are going to be brought into Hades. And there's a couple different ways that Hades and hell gets translated. But in this, he's literally talking suffering and consequences, hell as we know it. He's saying, because of your indifference, this is your consequence. This is what's going to take place. But... But if these works, if I would have showed up to Sodom in the, the wretched state that Sodom was with all the sin and the depravity that was taking place, if I would have shown up and done these kind of miracles here, then Sodom would have repented, but you haven't. So, I mean, there, there's two things taking place. One, that's offensive. I mean, the Jewish people knew the stories of Sodom and they were just offended at what's happening. But the reality is that Jesus cannot lie. Jesus is not exaggerating the truth. Jesus is literally saying, if I would have shown up there, they would have given me a better welcome than my own people. We've got to sit and wrestle with that. Because the indifference of having Jesus in the flesh in front of them, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that three distinct persons but in unity together in one personhood, God the Son in their presence. And they're still not repenting. They're still walking and indifference. Again, John MacArthur goes on to say, I guess people are going to stand someday before the judgment seat and say, but I never did anything wrong. And therein will be the severest condemnation. That you're judging your salvation and your sanctification and not doing anything wrong instead of giving your entire life to Christ and following after him solely. That is the calling card of the indifferent. That I was not as bad as this person, but I didn't do anything wrong like so-and-so or so-and-so, but that is what it means to be indifferent. And so the consequence that we see for Capernaum is simple. You will be brought into Hades. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 24, but I'll tell you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I mean, if we could just put ourselves in the Jewish people's shoes to hear this statement brought out, would have brought a lot of confusion, frustration, pain, but hopefully what Jesus is preaching, this idea of woes is I'm not done with you, but I'm pretty close. There's still time to repent. Repent from the spirit of indifference that you've gotten to. To, to help understand this again, go, you don't have to flip there, but Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable in a, in a pretty similar way, that the, the master's going away and he gives to his servants different talents, right? Most of us are probably familiar with this story. Uh, the first two go to invest their talents and then they gain interest on that and they give it back to the master. But what does the last servant do? He buries it. He, he buries it in the ground of his spirit of indifference. I, I'm not gonna do anything with it, but I also haven't lost it. So I, I'm giving it back to you just how you gave it to me. There's a spirit of indifference there. I'm not going to work hard to do anything with it, but I'm also not going to gamble and throw it away. I'm going to bury it in the ground and do absolutely nothing with it. And surely when the master comes back, he's going to go, man, that was some good conventional wisdom. You must listen to Dave Ramsey. You, you handled that exactly how I would have handled it. You're good. No, what does the master do? He loses his mind on him. He gets in trouble he curses him. The neutral ground of Jesus cannot and will not be tolerated. And again, this should be nothing new for us. What's probably the verse that's used out of context the most within scriptures in this context is actually used properly, which is Revelations three fifteen through 16. I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold. Would you that were neither, excuse me, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
I mean, we see this in Revelation. John is speaking, John is writing this as a prophetic word from Jesus to the churches going, listen, I'm not okay with your lukewarmness. Even Jesus would go as far to say, I'd rather you be cold, like be on fire for me or be against me. But this middle ground of lukewarmness is not going to work. This middle ground of indifference is a damnable offense that you never have the grip of coming out of. So Jesus is why this is slap dab in the middle of his gospel according to Matthew so that we could see this, the Jewish people could see this and step out of their indifference, repent and truly follow after him. Because Jesus says in Revelation, if you're this lukewarm, I'm, I'm spitting you out, I'm done with you. But really, I mean, this is where we have to lean into our own lives, ask ourselves the hard questions. Are we lukewarm Christians? I mean, we can look and we can mock and we can make fun of, and there's been plenty of that in my mind this week as I've been preparing this sermon. Like, you fools. I mean, you literally saw Jesus do these miracles. The guy that you did not like because he had demons, now you're bros. Like, you're best friends because that demon is gone. That's Jesus. Like, you would think, if I'm in this story, I'm selling everything and following him. But there's my pride again, thinking way too highly of myself. The reality is I'd probably go, ah, I got a good thing going on here. Man, grace and peace to y'all, good luck, but I'm staying. That's how most of us would probably respond. One author just goes really quickly in a chapter on uh, being lukewarm, gives a couple descriptions of these indifferent lukewarm Christians. And I just want to read over a few of these and, man, let the Spirit do its thing. That if we're indifferent towards Christ, let some of these uh, woes, some of these call-outs convict us this morning. Lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from their sin. They only want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. God is a useful fire escape to employ not a God that they worship. Does that explain you? Number two, he says, lukewarm Christians are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not do radical things themselves. They call radical what Jesus expects of his followers. Number three, lukewarm Christians equate their partiality are partially sanctified lives with holiness. But Jesus didn't call us to sanitation. He called us to discipleship. If you are his follower, your life will not be defined by avoiding sin, but also entering into his suffering. Number four, lukewarm Christians rarely share their faith with their neighbors, coworkers, or friends. Charles Spurgeon said, you're either a missionary or an imposter. Number five, lukewarm Christians think about life on earth much more than and more often than eternity in heaven. Number six, lukewarm Christians do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they never have to. Let me read that one one more time. Lukewarm Christians do not live by faith. Their lives are so structured that they never have to. David Platt goes on to explain this when he says, if you're not in a place where you feel desperate for the Spirit of God, then there's no way to be used on the front lines of mission. When our lives are on the front lines, we feel desperately our need for God's help. And lastly, lukewarm Christians give God their leftovers, not their first and their best. Stop calling your complacency and apathy a busy schedule or bills or forgetfulness. Call it what it is, evil. So when we really have to consider how much and how close we are to Jesus has inoculated us enough to the gospel that we've slid into this indifference and we didn't even realize it. That we know the right things that we can compare ourselves. Yeah, there's people that are hot that we'd like to be like, hot in their faith, to be clear. There's people that are hot in their faith that we'd like to be like, but we're not like these people, right? Like we're not like Sodom. We're not like Tyre. We're not like Sidon. We're, we're not over here. So, so we're good. But Jesus is saying, no, you're worse. That indifference, that middle ground is actually worse. And we see this explained in Matthew chapter seven, which we studied a couple of weeks ago. Here's what Jesus says. Everyone who, then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who has built his house on the rock. 
and the rain fell and the flood came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, or does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and the great was the fall of it. See, if we're building our house, we're building our lives on a faith that thinks that Jesus is just okay. This indifference toward him is the foundation of our life and we should not be surprised when the floods come and the rains come and we're completely destroyed. Because we're not building our lives on every command that he gives us. We're building our lives on what we want and then we're just throwing a bumper sticker of Jesus on our car and thinking he's pleased. We cannot walk in this indifference, church. It's going to destroy us. Let this be a woe moment this morning. That yes, Jesus is disappointed, but he's not done with us. That we can repent and believe and give everything to him, not just a few things. We think indifference is our safe route. It's the easy play. We think actually walking in faith and obedience is going to be difficult, but I promise you what scripture is telling us is that the safe play today leads to condemnation tomorrow. But the faith play of walking in obedience leads to eternal security forever tomorrow. So what then do we want? How do we want to walk in this? And point number three, We cannot be indifferent to Jesus because he has never been indifferent to us. See, I could teach this entire message and miss the totality of the gospel that's at play here. See, we cannot be indifferent to a Jesus that was never, ever indifferent to us. How dare us think that we can see the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus for our safety, our soul, our salvation and think that we can be indifferent to a man that was never indifferent to us. Consider what's happening. Jesus is doing these miracles. He's casting out demons, healing the disease. He's putting his life in danger. Why? So that one day in the not-so-distant future, he's going to go into a court system after being betrayed by one of his disciples. And he's going to be abused and ridiculed and whipped within inches of his life. And then he's going to go from there. He's going to have to carry his own cross. At this point, he's so weak that he can't even do it. So he has to have help coming in to carry the cross all the way up. And he's getting mocked and ridiculed the entire way. And then when he gets up to the top, he's nailed to the cross. He's had the crown of thorns shoved into his head. As he's literally dying and gasping for breath, the people are fighting over which clothes of his they're going to take. And as he's lifted up onto the cross, the people to his left are making fun of him. The only one around this circle that isn't is the one thief on the cross that repents in this moment. So we look at all of this totality together and there's not a zero effort or ability of indifference towards Jesus, towards us. Not one. That is not indifference. That is love that knows no limits. That's 2 Corinthians 5. He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin. Why? For us so that we can receive the righteousness of God. So we can't ever look at the gospel and say, Jesus was indifferent to me, therefore I'm gonna be indifferent to him. What's taking place in this area is Jesus is not coming in just to give people a better life, just to help heal people back, help cast out demons. No, he's teaching them, I am the Messiah and I'm here for one and one purpose alone, to be murdered for you. Because on the third day I'm gonna rise. And when I rise, your eternity is set with me in heaven if you ask for forgiveness and put your faith in me. So we have to ask the really, really hard questions of ourselves. If there is not a bit of indifference for Jesus towards us, then how dare we walk in any bit of indifference towards the one that gave his life for us? Those two truths cannot coexist, church. They just can't. And so the reality is when we start talking, and even in this moment, I know the Spirit's convicting people of living lives of indifference. Please hear me. The answer is not, the answer is not, let me say it one more time, the answer is not white-knuckle effort to try to live solely for Jesus. The answer is to look back into his love for you and let that change your love for others. 
Let that be what causes you to be a sellout Christian, not an indifferent Christian. That Jesus never showed an ounce of indifference for you and let us walk faithfully into that. Flip over to Ephesians 2. I mean, this, this probably summarizes the, the peak, the pinnacle of the gospel for us. That Jesus is not, has not, and will not be indifference. Even the woes towards the people in Israel are not woes of indifference, but they're woes of affection. They're woes of love. They're woes of warning. And so for some of you, read this with me. For some of you, just close your eyes and let this be read over you. That this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's who we were. I don't know if you've seen yourself in that light before. Your mom probably told you, you're the best ever, sweetie. No, you were by nature children of wrath. You deserve hell because the sin that so easily entangles us, because the sin, as Paul would say, the sin of Adam that is our sin now, God rightly and justly deserved to send us to hell. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, was he ever indifferent to us? Even in our, when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, as a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying that Jesus, in your sin, was not indifferent towards you. And Jesus, in your present, is not indifferent towards you. And in your future, you're going to be seated in the heavenly places. He's not indifferent towards you ever. So what is the call then for us? To not be indifferent to the one that's not indifferent to us. To, to give our life to him fully and completely, every bit and part of us. And understand that the battle is not to get us to fall into some massive form of evil, which can and will happen. But the battle of my soul and your soul right now in this moment is to get you to slide into a spot of indifference because there you will live for generation after generation thinking you've done nothing wrong. This is what Jesus is frustrated with. This is what Jesus is after. He doesn't want anything but a zeal. We see this word zeal, probably the most famous place is Isaiah 9, right? When we're talking about Jesus is going to come, he's going to be the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor. And at the end of that passage, uh, Isaiah says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So let us be zealous for the Lord, not indifferent. Let us be excited for what the Lord is doing, not indifferent. Let us follow after him boldly, not be indifferent. But let us not try to do this on our own strength but primarily remember all the lack of indifference that God has shown towards us through Christ and to lean into that for the glory of God. Let us no longer be indifferent to the things that he asks. John Piper puts it this way, whatever it takes, Lord, increase my zeal to do your will and my urgency to make best use of my time during these evil days. So as we end this morning, there's a simple three questions for us. Because categorically, this scripture breaks us down into three areas. There's either those that are hot in their faith for the Lord right now. 
There's those that are in this middle, lukewarm ground season of indifference. And there's those in this room that are completely cold that have no reason for the gospel. And so for those that are, the scripture would say, you're hot, you're not indifferent, but you're following after him with everything that you have. First, I'd say, praise God for you. Keep running. But here's my warning for you. Satan's greatest attack against you is indifference. And it's going to be a slippery slope once it gets started. It's going to start with a, hey, I, got, I had a busy season this thing was happening, this job transfer, this, that, this, this, this kids, the sports season, whatever it was, it's going to start in a very innocent and non-assuming way. And then it's going to slide you down into a season of indifference that could last for generation after generation. It could be the, what's the lasting legacy for your kids and your grandkids. Was yet yeah, grandma loved the Lord when it was convenient. Grandpa loved Jesus. He was faithful in the church once upon a time, but then... And this is the spirit that's sliding us into a different. So if you're hot in your faith right now, be on guard because that's what Satan is trying to do. And if you're cold in this room, if you're uh, opposite, you think Jesus has nothing to offer your life, I would just consider what we read in Ephesians 2, that you were dead in your sins and trespasses and nothing can bring a dead man back to life except for the power that happened at the resurrection of Jesus. So consider, Jesus is not saying, man, follow me and I'm gonna, I'm gonna lord every single thing over you. No, there's true freedom found in faith that is in Christ. So I consider man, who Jesus is really, not this idea that you think he is, but who is Jesus actually? But for the large majority of this room, that at some point, we walked the aisle, we prayed the prayer, our hearts were on fire for the sake of the gospel. At some point in our lives, and it could have been recent, and it could have been 30 years ago, indifference slid into our lives. And now if you were to explain your faith, it would be nothing but regimented discipline. There's no joy, there's no delight, there's no affection for the Lord. You're doing things out of duty alone. You're making it church when you can. You make it to these other things when you can. If, if Jesus, I mean, if literally someone asks you, hey, what do you think about Jesus? You'll typically respond in that moment, but you're never gonna bring it up on your own. That your faith has slid into a spirit of indifference. And I would say, church, lean in. Let us learn from our ancestors in the faith so that we don't have to have a woe are you, Redeemer Church of Madison conversation. So that Jesus doesn't have to say, woe to you Christians that are in Morgan County. That we never slide into a spirit and a season of indifference. So for all of us, the response for all three people is the same. Repent. Repent. If, if you're hot right now in your faith, repent for the areas that you've tried to do it on your own or the compromises that you've made. If you're cold and this morning is the day of salvation for you, repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. But for the majority, the 80% of the room, where in your life do we need to repent from indifference? And I would say the first step of repentance is just admitting I am indifferent in my faith. That I see all that Christ did for me I see the entirety of the redemptive history from Old Testament to Christ coming, his death, burial, and resurrection. I see the epistles. I mean, I see all that Christ has done throughout the scriptures, but this is nothing more than a book in my lap for 30 minutes a week. Well, an hour a week, let's be honest. This, is, this means nothing to us outside of making sure that we bring it to church so that we can look like we have it together. And I could give a lot of pointed examples, but, but here's the reality you know. You know the indifference that you're walking into this room right now. You know the placation that's taking place. You know the faking that's happening. You know the pretending that you're doing. You know, I don't have to convince you of your indifference. You know what I have to convince you of is the woe that Jesus is warning you, but he's not done with you. So let this morning be a morning of repentance. 
Let this morning be a morning of Jesus. I, you're right. I've been indifferent in my love and affections toward you. And I'm freely asking for forgiveness from that. I'm repenting of that. Let me be filled with the truth of the gospel so that I lead my family well. I lead my workplace well. I lead my own soul well for the glory of God alone. Let us repent from a spirit of indifference and trust him and him alone. See, this is probably, I'll end with this. This is probably the hardest part, I would say, of doing ministry in the South. is having to convince us that we're actually not following Jesus solely. That we get so much in the motions and placations and, well, I'm not as bad as that person, that trying to wake us up as individual Christians from the indifference that we've fallen into might be the most difficult part. I've been praying all week that the Spirit would do something huge in our hearts and in our lives for the sake of the gospel so that we would snap out of this spirit of indifference and run fully after him and him alone. So let's pray. Father, let us be so sensitive to the woes that you've given us in this text. I mean, there was, there, there must have been a hush that fell over the crowd, a spirit of offense that fell over the audience as they were listening to Jesus throw out these woes. And so this morning, let us replace the woe to Chorazin. Let us replace the woes to Tyree. Let us replace the woes to Bethsaida. Let us replace the woes to Capernaum. And let us put our name in that story. Woe to you, Gabe. For the mighty works that had been done in front of you were done anywhere else they would have repented a long time ago. Woe to you, church member. That God has sent Christ to die, be buried and raised on the third day for you. That he's given you his word that you hold in your lap so flippantly. Woe are us. That we've grown so inoculated, so neutral to the things of the gospel. I'm asking us to I'm asking you just to penetrate our hearts right now in this moment let us hear the woes of our ancestors and wake ourselves out of the slumber this morning through the power of you let us see where we've grown indifferent towards you not, not cold, we're still in the room not hostile, we're still here but where have we grown neutral where have we grown indifferent where has our faith lost its luster and excitement and joy and energy? And let us repent. Let me address, as our eyes are still about, let me address the husbands in the room, the, the fathers in the room. Men, your indifference is going to plague your family for generations. The way that you lead or do not lead your family is setting up generation after generation after generation. I know a lot of our stories. I know the fathers that some of us have had, but there's no excuse. The Spirit of God resides in us. So this morning, men, let us hit our knees and repent from our indifference. Jesus was never indifferent to us. Families, let us pray together. Let us serve him together. Let us remember all that he's given us and let us with joy give our entire lives to him, not just when it's convenient. Let there never be a single person that is surprised when they find out that we are a Christ follower. 
Let the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money, the way that we spend our energy be purely reflective on the faith that we have in you. God, I desire for this entire church, every one of us in this room, to wake up out of our slumber and indifference towards you and have a faith that burns so bright and so hot that people are naturally like moth to a flame, just drawn to what's happening here. And it's nothing that we've done, but we've just leaned into who you are, the author and perfecter of our faith. As Hebrews said, that, that for the joy that was before you, lay down your life so that we can be made whole. Father, let us lean into that. And so church, this morning as we end, this is a time of repentance. Let us repent, whether in your seat, at the altar, wherever you are, let us repent from our indifference. Let us return back to the faith that had us so excited at one point because that gospel message has never changed. Yesterday, today, and forever, you saved a wretch like me. That you sent your only son to pay the penalty that I deserved. So this morning, would we repent? Like the prodigal son, would we come running home out of our spirit of indifference and back to the loving arms of our fathers?